chapter 43, verse 29 to chapter 44 to verse 16. I'm reading from the NIV version. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. Verse 31. After he had washed his face, he came out and controlling himself said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. The man had been seated before him in the order of the ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as as much as anyone else's, so they feasted and drank freely with him. Verse 44. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the man's sacks with as much food as they can carry, and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they say to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves." Very well, then, he said. Let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes, and they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to the Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves are the one who are found to have the cup. This is the word from the Lord. Joseph, Joseph responds that only the one whose sack was found to contain the cup needs to stay behind as a slave. And this is uh, Judah's response. So now, if the boy is not with us, 
when I go back to your servant, my father. And if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now, hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Peter. Uh, if you can have your Bibles open to chapter 42, 45, we will actually cover four chapters. But as we do that, let's pray that God will speak to us. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks that your word is living and active. And we thank you that these are written so that we may learn from it. Lord, we pray that you'll make these words come alive through the power of your Spirit. Help us to learn the lessons that you would have us to to learn, that we may live in the light of your word. In in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Before I start, I just do want to say once again that chapter 42 to 45 forms one unit, one story. And so it really is the best thing to do if you go home and actually read these chapters in one setting. Because when you do read these these words in one setting, what you get is sort of all the ups and downs and and the building of the suspense and all of that happens if you you just read the, the whole story. It's a great story. You won't regret 
um, spending the time to read it. So I'd recommend it uh, to you. But since we don't have, we didn't have the time to uh, read the four chapters, let me summarize what has happened in these chapters. Well, as you know, after interpreting uh, Pharaoh's dreams, uh, he put Joseph, uh, the Pharaoh put Joseph in charge over all of Egypt. The history followed as Joseph interpreted. There were seven years of abundance, followed by seven years of famine. And so, um, in chapter 4157, it says, All the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. So people from all around the world started coming to Egypt to buy food. And of course, Joseph's brothers in land of Canaan were affected by the famine as well. When they heard that there is food in Egypt, uh, Jacob sent all of his sons, except Benjamin, who was the, the, the second son of his favorite wife, Rachel. Remember, he had two uh, wives, Rachel and Leah. Uh, so he sent the ten um, to buy food to Egypt. And when, they, when the ten arrive, um, they bow before Joseph, and Joseph immediately recognizes uh, who the ten are. And he remembered the dream, um, 42.8. And it's a quite a pregnant moment. Uh, Joseph thought that he had put all the past behind him. So at the end of chapter 41, we hear um, these things. After marrying Egyptian woman, he names the first son, Manasseh, which means to forget, saying that uh, God had allowed him to forget all the troubles of the past. And not only that, he named his second son, Ephraim, twice, twice fruitful. Uh, 4152, giving thanks for the new life that he's received. You see, he's put the past behind and he's made a new life in Egypt. But then now, after so many years, after so much hurt, his brothers are now in front of him. The past came to haunt him. Um, what, what, was he, uh, what was he supposed to do? I think there is a sense that we don't really know. I mean, he, he doesn't really know what he's supposed to do. And so he accuses them of being spies at first. This is chapter 42, 14. And his brothers tell him the truth about the family, saying that there were 12, uh, 12 sons one had to leave behind uh, with the father, and one, how one was no more. Joseph pretends not to buy the story, and he put the ten in prison. He tells them only one of them would be allowed to go back to land of Canaan and bring back Benjamin to verify that their story was true. And after three days in the prison, um, uh, well, putting them in, in prison for three days, he softens and he says, okay, actually only one of them will need to stay in the prison, but the other ones, all the rest, could go back to Canaan to get Benjamin. So all the brothers except Simeon leave, go back, leave to uh, go back to land of Canaan. But there the problem escalates because Jacob is still playing favorites. So he's not willing, uh, willing to let Benjamin go back to Egypt to get Simeon and to buy more food because he's afraid, afraid of losing Benjamin as well. He's lost Joseph. He doesn't want to lose the second son of his favorite wife. And so only when the time passes, all the food that they brought back the first time run out. And they have no choice but to go back. Jacob sends all the brothers, including Benjamin, back to Egypt. Well, this time, seem, uh, this time things seem to go better. They're invited to Joseph's house this time. In the, land, in, in the time of famine, they kill, Joseph kills animals and, and, and puts on this great uh, feast uh, for the brothers. 
And then he feeds, I don't know if you noticed, but Benjamin five times more than everybody else. As the brothers leave then to Egypt, with the, having feasted, having bought the, the, the food, Joseph hides this silver cup, special cup, in Benjamin's sack. And a little while after the departure, he commands his steward to go and get the brothers and accuse Benjamin of stealing this cup. And brothers, of course, are stunned because they're innocent. They protest by saying, if anybody has done this, then we'll all die. But they find the cup in Benjamin's sack. And the brothers are at a loss for words. They offer themselves to be slaves of Joseph. Joseph says, no, but I'll take Benjamin. Then Judah gives his plea in chapter 44, 32 to 34. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in, in, the, in, in, in place of the boy. Let the boy return to his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. So rather than leaving Benjamin behind, Judah says, let me take his place. And it's upon hearing that plea, he breaks down, he cries. He dismisses all the Egyptians and he cries with his brothers. He cried twice before, he hid his tears, he did it all alone, but this time he does it with his brothers. He wept so loudly that we're told in chapter 42, uh, 45 two, the Pharaoh's household heard his cries and he reveals his identity to his brothers. Once again, I truly recommend reading the story to you uh, in one setting because you will hear all the suspenses sort of building and, 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 and resolving. And, and it's a really great story of forgiveness and reconciliation. But if you're like me, as you're reading, probably there was a question in your mind. Why did Joseph um, toy with his brothers like this? Why did he not reveal, reveal himself in the first go? Why did he demand that they bring Benjamin back? Why did he have a feast with them only to plant um, this, uh, this, uh, this cup in Benjamin's sack to accuse them and to have them go through all the ups and downs of that emotion? It seems quite cruel. And I've heard, I've read a, a few things um, on commentaries and things, but it seems to me the simplest, uh, the best answer is the simplest, uh, simplest. He does this because he finds forgiving really difficult. He just can't do it. As he sees his brother, he can't just, brothers, all of a sudden, he can't quite get himself to just forgive his brothers. And forgiveness is difficult, isn't it? It's difficult because it means, once again, giving up the right for justice by bearing the cost himself. Joseph paid for his brother's sins with his life. He was betrayed, stripped of his clothes and identity. He was thrown into a well. He, he thought death was certain. He was rescued, uh, but then he only to be sold by his brothers as a slave. And then he served um, in Potiphar's house, accused of rape, spent time in prison. He went through all of that. Forgiving his brothers means that he would put aside all the tears, all the disappointments, anger, and the hurt. He would forego justice. He wouldn't demand that the brothers pay back for the wrongs that had been done to him. And that's difficult. That's why we find forgiveness so difficult. And not only that, you've heard the saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. If you let the wrong be done once, well, it, it's your problem. But if, you, if, if, if I let you do it twice, 
to me then, I should have known it's my fault. And I think there is a sense of that too. Joseph doesn't want to be hurt again. He doesn't want to forgive his brothers when they're going to do the same thing. They've not repented. So I think Joseph goes and tests his brothers. He wanted to see if they're worthy of his forgiveness, whether he wants to forgive them. He tested them to see if they would admit to their guilt. Right? And he saw some of that remorse, and he breaks down. The first time, when Reuben cried out, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? In chapter 42, 22. When he's, they're being accused of being spies, Reuben realizes that this is somehow to do with Joseph. What they did to Joseph, he's remorseful. He's, he, he, he admits to his guilt. And the fact that they're remorseful becomes clear when the steward pulls out the hidden cup from Benjamin's sack. And then Judah then says, what can we say? This is chapter 44, 16. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. The steward had accused them of hide, stealing the cup, a crime that, uh, which they did not commit. Yet, he says, I am guilty. God has found me guilty. It wasn't for the cup. What he's admitting to is his, what he did uh, to Joseph. He says, God had judged them for this. The brothers are sorry for what they had done to Joseph. And it's coming out through this story. And Joseph sees this. But then also, I think he tested them to see if the brothers have changed. Will they do what they did, what they had once done again to him? That's why I think he asked for Benjamin. To see if they, would, they, they had harmed him already. Right? Since he, they harmed him, Joseph, the other son of Rachel, he wants to see if Benjamin is still alive and well. He asks Benjamin, uh, he asked for Benjamin. And then when they bring him, they fed him five times uh, than anybody else so that they would become jealous of him. But he sees that his brothers don't act on jealousy anymore. And we know that Jacob showed, in the story, Jacob shows great favoritism towards Benjamin still. But they didn't plot to kill Benjamin like they did to Joseph. They protected Benjamin. Judah, in fact, says he would take the place of Benjamin. When jo- Joseph saw all of this, he broke down and he offered his forgiveness. They admitted to their guilt. They were sorry for it. They wouldn't do it again. And Joseph couldn't forgive until all these conditions were met. And it's understandable because forgiveness is really difficult. Actually, there's one more thing in the story that makes his forgiveness possible, which is really at the heart of the story. It's what Dale said at the start of his sermon last week. And if you didn't uh, hear the sermon, it's on the website. It's a great sermon, so I'd recommend you uh, uh, to it. Dale started his sermon saying, God's purposes are always slower, deeper, and better than we, we would choose. When Joseph learns that lesson, that God's purposes are deeper, slower, and better than he would choose, then he's able to forgive. It's there in chapter 45, verses 4 to 8, when he reveals himself. He says to his brothers, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. 
For two years now, there, will be, there, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. You see, he sees that what the brothers did was part of God's greater and bigger plan. God sent me here, he says. Your betrayal, the things that you did wrong against me. They were still wrong, but God had a purpose in it. And God brought me here to save you, and not just you, but many, many people, all the nations around. God had a purpose. So when he sees that purpose, he realizes that God is sovereign, that he is in control over all the things that happened to his life. He's able to let that go. He's able to see that and forgive his brothers. It was not you, but God sent me here. There are many people whom we need to forgive. And we found forgiveness really difficult. We might be having a hard time forgiving this person because we only see the evil in what they did to us. We can't see why it happened. Maybe actually you're on the other side of the situation. You did something wrong. It's hard for you to accept God's forgiveness because you think, well, all these people are suffering because of what I've done. And they have to live with the consequences of my actions. Maybe you're having a hard time accepting God's forgiveness because of it. Well, in both of these problems, we need to see that there is a bigger picture. That in all of that, that God is still in control. We need to realize that our stories are intertwined with God's stories. God's sovereign will. That God has a purpose through, in and through all of that. He is working out his plan. Then, if we realize this, and if we really trust this, then we will be able to let it go. That's the lesson in the story of Joseph, and that's the lesson in the whole of the story of Joseph. This is what we'll be left with as the story of Joseph ends. God is in control, and that doesn't make evil less evil and wrongs less wrong. They're still wrong, and they're still evil, but we realize that all these things are penultimate. They're not the ultimate thing. They come before God has the final say in how things will turn out. In a surprising, in an unexpected way, God will bring all these things into fruition in a way that we haven't seen before, we weren't able to see before. God is working out his plan to transform them in a way that we couldn't have imagined. His ways are always slower, deeper, and better. And Joseph saw that. And later on, we'll see this um, not only in Joseph's story, but in, you know, if you know the story of Israel, all the ups and downs, all the idolatry, all the injustice and adultery that happened in the nation of Israel. God has a, God has a plan for that nation. He's working out his plan of salvation through Israel. We see that in the life of Jesus, all the ups and downs, all the evil that is wrong done to Jesus. He will work that out for his plan of salvation. He has a plan for them all. It's difficult to forgive, but um, we, we, do, we do so when we realize these things. And we know that it's important. When you have forgiven, you know how important forgiveness actually is. It changes things. When we do, we're healed. And actually, we see this um, also in Joseph's life as well. The first time that Joseph cried, it's because of the pain. When Reuben cries out, oh, we shouldn't have done this. Joseph cries because it brings out all the pain in him. But the fourth time he cries in chapter 45, verse 15, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. It's a different kind of tears, right? 
There's healing and there's reconciliation there. That's why he cries. The wholeness there. He didn't just cover over the past as if nothing had been done. He pointed to them and he forgives his brothers for them. As difficult as it is, forgiveness is important. But, once again, as you're going through the story, I hope there was this sort of un- unease in your mind. I hope you, you, you felt a little bit uh, uneasy hearing these uh, things because we can understand Joseph and his forgiveness. But I think, uh, when I read it, I think, well, it, it doesn't seem quite right. There's some imperfections to his forgiveness. And I think that's because we have been so shaped by the forgiveness of Christ because of the perfect forgiveness of Jesus Christ that we see on the cross. The one who does not test. one who does not require proof of change. The one that is unconditional. We know that Jesus' uh, Jesus's forgiveness is unconditional because all the conditions for the forgiveness have been met. Cost of forgiveness, payment that comes in the form of anguish and pain and the payment of the penalty were experienced and paid on the way and on the cross itself. Justice was accomplished there. In short, uh, he paid the cost so he might freely forgive. And that's the forgiveness that we experience, that we know. His forgiveness does not require us to change before. It's the other way around. Remember Paul's uh, writing in Romans 2. God's kindness is intended um, to lead you to, to repentance. It's more perfect forgiveness because Christ's forgiveness actually transforms us. It doesn't require you to be transformed before. It transforms us. Coming and seeing Jesus on the cross awakens our conscience to our sinfulness and our need to change and our need to be forgiven. It's the cross that helps us to see the wrong and motivate our lives to live better. God's grace doesn't wait for us to be transformed. God gives us that grace so we might be transformed through it. And I hope you see the difference. The brothers had fear in their voices as they came to Joseph because they feel like they're being punished for what they had done to Joseph. Punished for, be, uh, for their sins. But we don't need to fear in that way, do we? When we confess our sins, we f- confess freely. Uh, Jen Pollock had this book, uh, Teach Us to Want. Um, which is a great uh, book that I'd recommend to you, Teach Us to Want. And she, write, she has a little funny anecdote there. She was leading a Bible study on Psalm 139, which ends with these moving lines. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. She asked a friend to pray that prayer. Search me and know me. See if there is any offensive li- uh, way in me. But the friend answered, no, no, I can't, I dare not pray that prayer. Because what she felt was that if she prayed that prayer and God actually had searched her, that she would come up with all sorts of wrongs that are in her heart and she would be afraid of what might happen. But you see, we don't need to fear in confessing our sins. We confess our sins in the assurance that Christ has forgiven us for our sins already. So we can be honest with ourselves. We can say to God, God, search me and know me. Reveal to me the things that that are wrong in my heart because we know what God reveals has already been dealt with in Jesus Christ. 
We confess our sins in freedom of knowing that Christ has forgiven us. We don't confess and beg for an uncertain forgiveness. We confess for different reasons. Because naming our sins, realizing our sins, is the first step to start hating our sins. Because bringing our sins before God restores our relationship as we were walking away, running away from God. It it realizes, it makes us realize that God already knows our sins and God has already dealt with our sins. That grace allows us to freely confess before God. And that's the unique thing about Christian forgiveness. And that's the unique thing about Christianity, that forgiveness comes first. Grace comes first. It's offered to all, to, to those who would come to Jesus and to follow him as their Lord. And we saw this. Uh, recently, didn't we? Um, not long ago, on June 17th, a 21-year-old Dylan Roof entered Emmanuel African Methodist Church, Episcopal Church in South Carolina. He, he attended the prayer meeting there. After attending the meeting, he shot every single one of them. Nine of them died, and one of them survived. We, found out, we find out later that it's motivated, motivated by racism. He wanted to start a racial riot in South Carolina. But we saw this at the courthouse. Many people, many families uh, who lost their families stood up one by one and offered their forgiveness for Ruth. One person said, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I'll never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you. Another said, you have killed some of the most beautiful people I know. Every fiber in my body hurts, but as we say in the Bible study, we enjoyed having you. And may God have mercy on you. Ruth is not worthy of forgiveness. He didn't reform. We're not even really sure if he was remorseful. But the families offer their forgiveness anyway because of what Christ has done for them. Because this is what we do when we have a Savior who have treated us in the same way. Who, have, who, who has shown us grace in the same way. Sam Moffat, um, who used to teach at Princeton Seminary, he, di- he recently died this past year, said some, something similar. During the Cultural Revolution, communists came and, and killed many of his closest friends, seized all his properties. He was kicked out of China, drove him out, and he talks about the crisis of faith that he had subsequently. How can he forgive all these people? Then he says, I realize that if I have no forgiveness for the communists, then I have no message at all. That Christianity boils down to that idea. Unconditional forgiveness. This is the radical message of Christ. This is the radical message of Christianity that has been changing the world for the last 2,000 years. That we love those, God loved those who are unlovable. God forgave those who are unforgivable. And so we do the same. We go out and imitate our Savior. We forgive those who are unforgivable. We love those who are unlovable because we have been loved in the same way through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if we don't have that message, we don't have Christianity. We don't have a gospel that we could offer to the rest of the world. Forgiveness of Christ. Grace that comes first. So, I'm sure you have people in your life that you need to forgive. 
who do you need to forgive? Forgiveness is difficult, but it's wonderful. Forgive, uh, forgive knowing that there is a purpose in and through all of it. Because God's purpose is slower, but it's deeper and better. Forgive because Christ has first forgiven you, forgiven us. That is the good news that we have to offer to the rest of the world. Let's pray. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks for the forgiveness you've given to each one of us. And we thank you that it's your kindness that that leads to repentance. That because you have died on the cross, because you have offered that unconditional forgiveness to all those who would come to you and follow you, Lord, um, that we are able to experience that love, experience that forgiveness, and offer it to others. And help us to know that love. Help us to know that grace. Help us to trust in your sovereignty and help us to forgive radically the forgiveness that the world does not yet know. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.